like to read a couple of verses tonight in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, we're going to read in, in chapter 43 of Isaiah. Um, often in the Old Testament, Isaiah is re- referred to uh, the gospel book of the Old Testament. One of the great evangelists was this prophet, Isaiah, and we're going to uh, read some words here recorded by him uh, tonight in this chapter. Isaiah 43, we're going to read verses 11 and 12, and we might also read verse 25 of Isaiah 43, but I just want to focus on a word here that we're going to read in this um, in this verse. Isaiah 43 and verse 11 says this, I, even I, am the Lord. And beside me, there is no savior. I have declared and have saved and I have showed. I want you to remember those words that he says, he saves, he shows. But just remember those words that we read there. I, even I am the Lord and beside me, this is God speaking, beside me, there is no Savior. In verse 25, it's that same phrase repeated one more time. We'll read it there in verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, for mine own sake. If you can remember those words, that's what I want to speak about tonight. I want to speak about tonight a very familiar title of the Lord Jesus. And I want to do that from this verse. And he says here, I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Savior. Often in life, Often in life, we go back to the first titles that we remember of people. Does anybody here ever grow tired of calling their, their parents mom and dad? I'll tell you something. I, I, I disdain it when children call their parents by their parents' first name. I think it's an insult. It doesn't matter how old you are. You call them by the name that you first called them by. You, you can call your dad, dad until you're, you're well into retirement, if he lives that long. And you can call your mother. You say, we sometimes go back to the earliest titles that we have for our grandparents. I can remember Matt telling about the way he would refer to his grandparents in their French titles. And it just was, it sounded sweet when I heard him uh, tell about that. But just to think about that, I, I go back to this because we call him teacher. We call him Lord. We, we call him a prophet, a king. We call him, a, he, he's one who was wonderful. He was one who was a prince of peace. There's, there's got to be hundreds of titles for Jesus Christ. And yet I come back to this one because when I first knew him at the age of 15, on a November evening, I first knew him by this name, Savior, by Savior. I bring that to you tonight because that's what he has to be to you if you're ever going to be in heaven. I think sometimes, I I've met parents, and they've said publicly they would do anything to save their daughter from from sin, from going down to a place called hell. I can think of sisters who have said they would do anything to save a brother or a sister. I've met fathers who said they'd do anything to save a parent. And you'd say, tonight, I would do anything. I can say that before God tonight. I say it honestly, and I say it wholeheartedly. If I could save you from your sins, I would do anything to do it but I can't do anything. I tell you the person who did. I tell you about Jesus Christ. I tell you about a man who did everything. A God who made it possible tonight 
For me to tell you, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What does the Bible tell us? That unto you this day in the city of David is born a a Savior. A Savior. It's the first title I knew him by, and if I knew him by no other title, I would be satisfied for all eternity. He has saved me. And I want to tell you tonight about salvation. I say that tonight because often in Scripture, that title is brought up. It's John who tells us that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It's fact, and when Peter gives his first one of his sermons there in Acts chapter 5, he says that God has exalted Jesus Christ to be a prince and a savior. We read there in the book of 1 Peter, they talk about believers and they say, he's our savior. Let me tell you tonight, anybody who's willing to listen tonight, you could end up You could end up not in heaven tonight and you could know that he was the savior. You could know that he was a savior. You could say about other people here, he's their savior. Tonight, if there's any chance of you having your sins forgiven, you will know him by the first person to ever call him savior in our New Testament. When a person lifts their eyes to heaven and says, I rejoice in God, my savior. My savior. He's mine. It's personal tonight. To know salvation, to know it, absolutely sure. Because He does the saving. And I want to speak upon that tonight, that he does the saving. You'd say, it doesn't matter where I'm at tonight. It doesn't matter how old I am. It doesn't matter how young. He can save. He can save. The Bible says he can save to the uttermost. There's no boundaries, no limits to which he can save. The Bible even says there was once a man and one man owed $500 and one man owed $50. And, and, And the Bible says, who, if they had no money, who, who's worse off? And the Lord Jesus says they're, they're both worse off. It doesn't matter how much you owe if you have nothing to pay. How do you measure the debt? And yet the Bible tells us, and it comes across so clearly, and it says that Christ, right, our Savior, right, he's the one who has redeemed us from all iniquity. Here's the one, the Savior, who has paid a cost. I think sometimes that just being saved, we, we don't often refer to it. You never had that moment in life where you'd say, you were saved from something. But how often in life we're trying to make ourselves better. We're trying to make ourselves greater than the man next to us. You know, if, if, if you put Michael Phelps and myself in the middle of the Atlantic, you know who needs to be saved? Both of us. Both of us. If you put Michael Phelps and you put an infant in the middle of the Atlantic, you know who needs to be saved? Both of them. And so the Bible says, God looks down on a world and he says to everyone without exclusion, he says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth because I am God and there's no one else, nobody else. Tonight, it doesn't matter how great the problem, how small it is in your mind. It doesn't matter how vast the sin, it doesn't matter how many days you have left here. The Lord says, I am the Savior, and there is none beside me. I want you to figure on that tonight, because often in life, we're, we're doing our best to be better. We're doing our best to be grander. We're doing our best to just be a little bit better than the person who occupies the seat next to us, or the house next door to us. And yet, Scripture says, oh, that the whole world would be guilty, because he only comes to save one kind of person. He only comes to save sinners. 
He only comes to save the ungodly. He only comes to save those. You'd say, that's it. From the day I was born, you'd say, you could look down on that small person, that small infant that occupied a, a little bassinet in Valley Hospital on an August 20th day in 1983. And with all the wonder that you could look at a creation that God has made, you could say, He's guilty and he's condemned. You'd say, no, I would never say that. I'm glad that was said about me because from day one, I was known that I was a candidate for the great salvation that God offers because he only offers it to the guilty, to the condemned. He only offers it to the ungodly. And from my first day on this earth until my last day, those are the words you can pen over my life. Unguilty. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I'm ungodly. I'm simply a sinner saved by grace. Let me tell you about the Savior tonight. Let me tell you about him as just as I know him, as scripture presents him. Let me tell you about this savior tonight, but I only do so because I can't save you. And I declare him because I would do anything tonight to know that there was someone else who was traveling home to heaven with me, with others. There was a famous hymn writer, he said once, and he says, my heavens would be two heavens if I knew that you were going to be there too. I say that tonight. And I only meet it to a human extent, but there's a savior tonight and he would do and has done everything necessary to save your soul. The Bible here says, the words of the Lord, he says, I, even I am the Lord and beside me, there is no savior. And then he says these majestic words. He says, he goes, I have said, I saved. And he goes, and I showed. And I want to speak on those three things tonight that he says, I have said, I have saved. And I have showed, I like those words because they're just, they seem to sum up everything that I could, could muster tonight to tell you about a savior. He says, I have said, and I think about God's word. I think about the fact that he has framed the world with the words from his own lips, that creation comes into existence because he spoke. I think of, I think of our savior in this world. And he speaks and demons respond. He speaks and death gives up its prey. He speaks and diseases seek to exist. You'd say, he just says it. He just speaks. His word, he says things and things are obedient. The weather obeys his commandments. He simply says, arise to a young girl. He says, come forth to an old man. And they leave death and they're alive again. I'm amazed at the words of the Lord Jesus. I'm amazed as I look at them, all that he did. And yet I'm so amazed that when I come to my Savior's finest hour, there are words that I can hang my life on. Because there, as my Savior bleeds at a place called Calvary, he said words in creation that have made me marvel and have made everyone marvel for the past 6,000 years. But for six hours at Calvary, he said words that have made me marvel and will so do so for all eternity. He said words like forgiven. He said words like finished. It's all done. You'd say, and you could hang your life on the one who hung on a cross and said these words. You'd say marvelous words. But not only that, I think of the compassion of the Savior. Because in John 12, he says this. He goes, he who hears my words, he who hears my words and does not believe them. He says, I don't judge them. Because I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. How about it tonight? How about instead of fearing judgment? How about instead of judging what you believe to be the correct and the incorrect religions on earth? How about for the first time you put all religion aside and you simply just rest on the written word of Jesus Christ? Right here. He says he saves. 
He says he says that he saves. In his word, we can read words like, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came not, I came not into this world for good people, but for those who are sick, for those who are sinners. He says there, Paul tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so when I look at his words, I'm amazed that even his words tell me, what a savior. You ever say, I could rely on a man's words. His word is his bond. And here I have a savior. He was the word. And the word became flesh. And you know, after this life is all folded up, after this world is all done, and everything has expired, because everything will expire, his word remains. The heavens and the earth pass away, but my words remain forever, the Lord Jesus says. And here we have his words, but you say, you know what? Words without actions. What are they? Words without actions. He says, I say, I have spoken, but he says, I have saved. I was thinking uh, about Mount Rushmore there. remember going there when we were 13 or 14 years old. My father took us out west. Um, and he said, we, there we saw the, the four great presidents they are carved into that great mountainside. And I was thinking about them. Uh, my brother v- recently visited Washington, D.C., and, and he told me this great fact. He said, when you look at the four men who are, who are up there, forever emblazoned on the side of a mountain there in the Dakotas, he said, you look at each one of them, he said, and you think of areas in this world, even around us, that, that seem to, to hold tribute to them. You think of Lincoln. You think of that great monument down in D.C. And you think of the Lincoln Monument. You think of on one side are his words in the Gettysburg Address. On the other side, you have his second inaugural address and a man who's remembered by his words. You think of Roosevelt there on the mountain. You go to the Museum of Natural History. You walk into that grand foyer there. And on each one of the walls are great quotations from Roosevelt about manhood, about youth, about the state, and about nature. You'd say they're emblazoned with his words. You think there of Thomas Jefferson, and who has not read the opening lines to the Declaration of Independence and been more than impressed with the prose which come out of his mouth as he declared something as Americans we still glory in? What about Washington? Go to the Washington Monument. How many words are there? Not one. Not a single word on the Washington Monument. You say, why? They say Washington was a man who could be remembered for his actions just as much as his words. They said he was the greatest thing that the the army had to offer. They they knew he would be a a future leader of the country, and yet he was always the man to ride into battle first. He was always the man on the horse who led the troops in. He said not fearing what bullet would hit him, not fearing what ill would come. They said he was first in battle. He was the one who went in ahead of all else, letting his life be the example and letting his life be the shield for all else behind him. You say here was a man who didn't need words. He just had actions. I commend to you Jesus Christ. And if my friend, I had never heard a voice And I haven't. There at Calvary, it says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before his shears is dumb. He opened not his mouth. You say, I'm so glad that I opened this scripture. And over and over again, I can read the words of Christ in red. But I tell you tonight, if all you knew was Calvary, if all you knew was the place called Calvary, where for six hours my Savior hung and bled and died for this helpless race, I tell you this, actions would speak as loud as words that day. Actions would speak as loud as words. You'd say, 
No greater action was ever known. No deed was ever greater. You said never was there a greater manifestation of love. Never was there a greater glory seen. Never was there a more triumphant moment in this earth's history than when God's well-beloved son, the one who caused the heavens to be opened for voice to come down and say, listen to him. He was silent there at Calvary. Why? Because, because so that my mocking voice could be heard shouting against him. And yet he bled and died for me. You'd say, I'm glad that the words complement the action. It says there that he says. It says that he saves. And you read carefully there, it says he has saved. He saved. It says it in the past. If you, if you, don't, if you missed that, go back and look. Isaiah 43 there, and you read that verse, it says that he declares. And it says he saved in the past tense. Why? Because everything about your salvation has to do with the past. Your salvation has nothing to do with your future. In fact, I would say this tonight, your salvation has nothing to do with your past. Your salvation has nothing to do with your present. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. Your salvation has everything to do with Jesus Christ. What took place on a Friday afternoon when he was crucified there at Calvary, you'd say, he saved. Why? Because he's self he could not save. He refused to save himself and therefore saves you can save you. And you'd say, we see that in his action. You'd say, what an action here. And, and what a remarkable thing. Because sometimes we look at the death of Jesus Christ and we, we put it aside as though it, it adds up in a list of things that we take together and we say, oh, all put together. There, we get a list of things. No. Sometimes it's hard to look at someone dying and getting the idea of love or getting the idea of salvation. Sometimes it happens in, in just the same medium. I can think of a number of times in life where I'd say, I had to be saved from water. Saved from water. And you'd say, because that's where I was going to perish. And you'd say, how many of us have feared, as it were, the, the great bodies of water out there? If we, were to, if we were to be in them, if we were to be, as it were, drowning, you'd say, oh, anything to do to be saved from that. And yet you go to a January cold day in 2009, and what saved the 155 people aboard Sullenberger's flight? What, what saved them? Water. You'd say amazing to be saved from it and yet to have it save you. Sometimes salvation and the death of Christ is confusing because you'd say, how is it that a man's death could give me life? How is it that being a sinner could be the key to being saved? Because here we read of someone and the Bible tells me this, that if I have one sin, if I've done one thing out of place, I deserve nothing more than eternal punishment and damnation. And you know what qualifies me for God's salvation? That same one sin. The same sin that condemns me tells me that I could be a candidate for God's so great salvation. Tells me that because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You'd say it's, it's almost unimaginable that the sin that is bringing me down. 2 Corinthians 5 tells me this, that God made him to be sin. God made his son sin. He didn't know any sin. And he made him to be sin, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's a tremendous truth. It's one of those words. It's one of those words, sinners. It's like, uh, it's like telling one of the kids to take a nap today. I can imagine some of the young people, maybe some of the old people, if you told me how to take a nap, you'd get all, you'd get all bent out of shape about it. It would be the worst thing you could hear when you tell your kid on a Saturday afternoon he's got to take a nap. You tell Matt he could take a nap today, he'd probably kiss you. Why? Why? Why does it sound terrible when you're younger? Why does it sound so marvelous when you're older? What changes? What changes? 
What changes between the five-year-old and the 50-year-old? You say, oh, I know what changes, a need, a need, a need. That's all that changes. You know, sin sounds awful because for most of my life, I knew that sin was going to bring me to hell. I knew that sin was the reason I deserved to be there. And then on one wonderful evening, I realized that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And it became one of, the, one of the greatest, as it were, descriptions of who I was. Because I was guaranteed from scripture, he would save me. The Bible says he's, he says. It says that he saves. And finally, it says that he shows. That he shows. That he shows this. You know, uh, Psalm 8 says this, that when, uh, when I see the heavens, the stars and the moons, which your hands have made, speaking of God, the psalmist is left with this one thought. Who am I? What is man? He goes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the firmament, the stars declare his, his craftiness, his, his wonderfulness. And you'd say, it's amazing the things in life that show us all about our Lord. You'd say, they just come through in such vibrant colors. It displays his attributes divine. And you'd say, it's wonderful. The stars, the heavens. I was reading an article the other day. It says 50 years this year, we celebrate the moon landing once again. And they said, you can see how far down we've come as a, as a, as a society because, because we don't look up anymore and say we look into the heavens. We say we just look into space. It used to be a place where God was. Now it's just space. God looks down into this world. He doesn't down, look down into space. He looks down into a world of individuals that he loves with an immeasurable love. He looks down upon a planet that can't, you can't comprehend the love of God to this world. You can't, you can't write it down. The, the hymn writer has said if, if the oceans were ink and, and the skies were a parchment, we couldn't write the love of God above. We couldn't do it. And you'd say, amazing that he looks down on us and says, I've done everything to save them. And we look back up at space and we say, I wonder what's there. I ask you tonight. The Bible says that he says, and he shows, he saves, and he shows. To look at Calvary tonight, you know, we look at the stars for confirmation sometimes, and men in the Bible also look at the stars for confirmation. But you know, one day the stars are going to fall from the heavens. They're not going to be there anymore. In fact, at Calvary that day, on April 3rd, AD 33, for three hours, the closest star to our planet Earth, it didn't shine, it was darkened. Why? Because the greatest display known to man was on show for all of humanity to see. God had become a man and he was being nailed to a cross. I ask you tonight, if he was there for any other reason than to become your savior, I can't imagine why he was there. If you can add anything to this salvation other than the person of Jesus Christ, it is no salvation at all. If any other thing could save you, God wouldn't have done it. If he could have sent an angel, if he could have given a rule, if he could have given a church, if he could have done something else, I'm sure he would have done it. But he did the grandest, most marvelous thing, and he sent his son to be the savior of the world. And on display that day at Calvary was God's well-beloved son hanging crucified for me. And yet the display doesn't end there. Three days later, he rose again. And if I could quote you the words of Fanny J. Crosby, a very well-known, prominent hymn writer from a century gone by, she said one day, as far as things that we see and things that are shown, she says, I shall know him, I shall know him. As redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nail 
in his hands. He says he's the Savior. He saves because he didn't save himself. He shows. He shows the wonderful attributes of God at the place where he does the saving Calvary. Tonight, he would show you once again how wonderful he is because if there was anybody in this tent tonight that placed their trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you would be saved. You would be saved because the Savior does the saving. I, I would plead with you tonight. I would implore you tonight to believe God, to take him at his word, to believe that what his son has done for you is enough and to be saved. Because our verse has said, I, even I am the Lord. Beside me there is no Savior. I have said, I have saved, I have showed. And unless we forget that second verse, he says, I, even I am the Lord. And if that day at Calvary, the sun was blotted out, there's something that was greater that was blotted out that day because it says, I, even I am the Lord. He says, I have blotted out. I have blotted out your sins, blotted out your iniquities. And you say, why did he do it? He says right there something so marvelous. He says, I've done it for mine own sake. There was nothing in me that caused Christ to go to Calvary. There was nothing in David that ever led God to send his son. Why did he send him? Why did he love me? Why did he die for me? Why did he give his life? Why did he come to save me? The questions could go on and on. I could give you a thousand whys. And tonight the answer is in this. God did it for himself. God did it because that's who he is. He is a loving, giving, forgiving God. And he sent a loving, living, forgiving savior to take your place at Calvary. And tonight you're left with a very easy decision that so many will not make to take Christ alone, to have a savior, to have my savior and to be saved. It's a grand thing to be saved and to know it. You can know it tonight because God has said it. God saves and God has displayed it. Tonight you can believe it. Great to see those that are out this evening. I was laughing when Dave said the story about uh, those who enjoy taking a nap uh, and then those who wouldn't like taking a nap. And he said, what's the difference between five and 50? And he was talking about me. I'm not 50. <laughs> I'm not even 40, but I will be 40 in a couple of weeks. But great to see everyone that's out tonight. If you have a Bible, let's turn to the book of Numbers in our Old Testament, Numbers chapter 32. <clears throat> Numbers in chapter 32. There's a familiar verse here. If I was asked the question, I'm sure there are some children in the audience, especially that could tell me which verse I'm going to read, but Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. And it says this, But if you will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Just that last phrase there, that you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Now let's jump all the way to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to look at the book of John. So the fourth book 
in your New Testament. John's Gospel in chapter 14. Now we have read this verse earlier this week, but we're going to look at it in another light tonight. John's Gospel, chapter 14, and verse 1. Now here the person of the Lord Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking about heaven. And let's read these words together. John, chapter 14, and verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I, wouldn't, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let's continue reading just to show you, really, man's position. As even if they, if they were in, the, in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, some have told me if I was standing in front of Christ, I would believe. But look what happens here. If you had known me, verse 7, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the father. And it suffices us, or it satisfies us. Jesus said unto him, have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the father. And how sayest thou then, show us the father? So this person was right in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and really didn't get an understanding of really the person of Christ. As I reflect upon the gospel meetings that have just gone forth in the past week and the preaching of the gospel, John 3 and verse 16, and we've spoken about John 14 here and Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the person of Christ, they're really the best of our ability as the Holy Spirit is working, is raised as the Savior of sinners. I wonder as there are individuals that are out tonight and there are individuals that have been out in previous nights and we sit there, uh, and I say it very respectfully, but we know that we are born in sin and we sort of sit in our sin. And I wonder if there's a thought that, re that registers within the unbeliever tonight. And the thought is this, that my sin will never find me out. And we sort of sit there. I heard the gospel my whole life and I sort of thought, well, maybe my parents know certain things that I do, but there's things that they don't know. And I'm sure that there's things that I do and maybe God doesn't know. But the Bible teaches this, that God knows every sin that you ever committed, that you will commit today, and that you will commit tomorrow. And God's word says, be sure your sin will find you out. And someone might ask the question, well, what can I contribute to God to inherit, to get eternal life, to get this word saved, to be saved, to know my sins forgiven, to know that Jesus paid for my sins? How can I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? What can I contribute to know this for a certainty? Jonathan Edwards said these words, the only thing that you ever contributed to your own salvation is your sin. That's it. And our sin found us out. It found us out when we were born. We were born in sin, and wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That's just scripture. That's not something I conjured in my head and I'm just spitting out from my lips. That's from the word of God. The Bible says we were born in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Our hearts desperately wicked. So sin, my friend, found you out the day you were born. Sin found you out at the place called Calvary. 
As sin, as the Lord Jesus Christ, a sinless person, born his own body, our sins upon the tree. And if you never come to trust Christ, I will tell you this, and I'll tell it very solemnly and seriously tonight, and with all respect and love, but I will tell you this, if sin hasn't found you out in this life, and you think there are things that you're just going to hide till you pass up through time and enter eternity, sin will find you out in eternity. It's a certainty. The sinner that dies outside of Christ perishes for eternity. And they stand before the great white throne. And their sin has found them out. At my school in Chicago, there's a lot of... You're going to have to cue me on time. I don't know. I don't have a clock. <laughs> Someone took the clock. That's okay. In my school in Chicago, we have a, a high... I would say 98% of our students are gang members. And uh, the streets are very dangerous. So uh, people will bring pepper spray to school. And, uh, but they do bad things with this pepper spray. And uh, one instance, uh, just a few months ago, uh, there was a girl who decided to spray pepper spray in her classroom. And it was, uh, you, you talk about the most chaotic situation you can ever imagine. Just imagine a, a, a third floor. There's sixth through eighth grade there. We're all gang kids. And these kids are scared for their life because they can't breathe. And they're, and they're crying and they're throwing up because there's pepper spray. And they're trying to run through the hallways. And we as teachers are trying to stop them. And the fire departments are there. And there's helicopters over our school. And I mean, it's absolute chaos. The girl thought no one would find out. You know what happened? Her mom came to school and she said these words. Don't tell me, she said, and loud. I mean, the whole school heard. Don't tell me my daughter lost her pepper spray. Caught. Be sure your sin will find you out. It'll find you out in time and it'll find you out in eternity. On 4-11 and April 11th, uh, Chloe Jones from Virginia, she had warrants uh, for assault charges. She was on the most wanted list. On the police department Facebook in uh, Virginia, there was a most wanted list post, and she wrote on that post, I don't know really how Facebook works too much, but she wrote on that post, she said these words, do you pick up or delivery? And she's mocking the police. And uh, there was like a bunch of emojis and laughing faces and everything else, and people started responding to her, and she responded back, she said, oh, I'm making these jokes, but I'm here at Ruby Memorial Hospital, and I'm just sort of going through a little thing. You know what happened? The police got hold of it, and she was caught because they showed up at the hospital, and she was picked up. Be sure, the Bible says, be sure, be certain, without any doubt, that your sin, your sin, will find you out. It always does. A 41-year-old man in Ohio having a heart attack, he thought he was going to die. These are real stories. You can Google this if you like, but I, you can Google stories on when people get caught, sort of the most silly criminals you can ever imagine, if that's a good word for the evening tonight. But this 41-year-old man, he's having a heart attack in Ohio, and he thinks he's going to die. The paramedics are over him, the police are over him, and as he's holding on to the policeman's hand, he says these words, uh, there's something that I did that I need to get off my chest, and it's a crime that I committed years ago, but I took a life. And you know what happened? They revived his life, and he was caught. And he was sentenced to life behind bars. Be sure. Be sure. He thought he'd never have to pay the consequence of his sins. He thought he'd never have to pay the wages of his sins. And he's just confessing something. Be sure your sin will find you out. Last one. Craig Ellsworth out of Florida. He's upset with his neighbor. And they lived in a little trailer park. And so he takes a Molotov cocktail. If you don't know what that is, it's just a bottle. And they fill it with gasoline or kerosene or a hard alcohol that can light on fire and they put a little wick on the tip of it or a little handkerchief and they light that and they throw it and wherever it breaks, there's an explosion of fire and so on. So he gets mad at his neighbor. He takes this Molotov cocktail, lights it up and he throws it 
And what he doesn't realize, as he throws it to the trailer that's next to him, the wind was so strong that the Molotov cocktail came flying back and exploded on his trailer, and he lost everything. And when they showed up to his house, he said, well, I was trying to get my neighbor. I was so angry, and I threw this. Be sure your sin will find you out. And he was caught. Absolute foolishness, you'd say. But the sinner that stands before God, their sin has found them out. They stand condemned, the Bible teaches. Be sure your sin will find you out. We have all sinned, Romans tells us, and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And we've said it over and over in Romans chapter 3, you see it, that we've all become guilty, that our, that our feet are quick to shed blood, and our throats are as open sepulchers. We're absolutely filthy. God looks down upon us, and he says, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. So parallel across the world, those born in the past, those born in the present, those born in the future, our sin, our sin has found us out. We're born in our sin. At the heart of the problem is the heart. Someone has asked the question when you work in Chicago and you see certain things at Pacific Guard Admission or in the schools you work at where your wife works in a particular areas where it's very rough. Uh, what is it that causes these children to act so violent or so? It's sin. That's the problem. It doesn't matter if it's in that neighborhood or the richest neighborhood in the country. The heart of the problem is the heart. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Our hearts, friend, took Christ to a cross. And I'm thankful today that even before that, God's heart took Christ to the cross. In full love for the sinner. And the Lord Jesus Christ allowed men to place him on a cross. Men never placed Christ on a cross. God allowed men to place Christ on a cross. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And they placed him on a cross. And it was the heart of love of the Savior that hung between heaven where he came from and earth who he was dying from. For, and he died on a cross. And I say it, and I've said it every single night. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And because he's alive tonight, you and I are responsible to him. And because he's alive tonight, we can have eternal life. And not only eternal life, but life, Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and life more abundantly. And that's what God promises. He wants to transform and supernaturally, radically transform your life. To be born again. To be a new creature. To be pure, as it were, from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And to know your sins forgiven. That comes through the person of Christ. Here we read about the story of Thomas. And I picture Thomas just being around this perfect person, just being around the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would have heard now that Jesus is going to prepare a place and he's preparing this heaven. And maybe Thomas is convicted for the first time in his life of his sinful condition. He's around someone who's perfect. You ever sit near someone and they're just a, let's use the word, it's a, maybe a self-righteous person. They, they do a lot of good things in life and you're just sitting around them thinking, boy, I feel so dirty. I, I feel so helpless when I sit near our brother because he does so much good and I just feel so. Well, Thomas is sitting near the king of kings and he's walking with the son of God and he's watching the Lord Jesus Christ act so different than any person he's ever met and the only person that could ever promise he's creating a place in heaven. Do you imagine hearing words like that? Someone could say to me, well, I'm going to create a place up in Wyckoff and I bought this property and I'm building this. Well, you'd believe him. But if someone said to you these words that I'm going to prepare a place past space in heaven, you'd say, boy, they're not doubting these words. They're holding on to these words. 
And Jesus is speaking. And Thomas hears about heaven. And all Thomas wants to know is, how can he know for sure he's going to heaven? And maybe there's someone here tonight. And that's the question that you have. Maybe there's someone listening, perhaps on, on audio. And you're asking that one question. How do I know for sure? How can I know for certain, without any shadow, without any doubting, how can I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? And Jesus tells that person, I'm the way the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. Thomas could have asked him any question. Can you imagine standing near the king and you realize that he's perfect and he's spotless and he's so different than anyone else? You'd probably want to ask him, well, how can I be rich? Someone here would. There's people in the world and they meet someone who's very famous or, or uh, at a celebrity. They, they have one question perhaps to ask them, well, how can I make more money? How can I advance in society. Well, Thomas doesn't ask that. Thomas wants to know how he's going to heaven. Thomas could have asked the question, how can I be the wisest person in the world? Listen, you're speaking about heaven. How can I know all the wisdom of man? How can I know everything? How can I be the most powerful man on earth? Thomas doesn't ask that question. He just says this, how can I know for sure a guilty, wretched, just sinner? How can I know that I'm going to the place that you promised of, that I'm going to heaven? And Jesus says these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, but, but by me. So with God's help, I'd like to just look at uh, four different ways. We could take this first and we could speak of the way. We could speak of the truth. We could speak of the life. But really, they all point us to the person of Christ. So I'd like to just take, when Jesus says, I am the way, we're going to look at different ways that Jesus provides through the work of the cross. But number one, I'd like to look at the way of pardon. If you were to turn in your Bibles, and you certainly don't have to this evening, but if you were to turn and look at the book of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, uh, the words say this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, that's the person of Christ, that's the God of heaven, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14 says this, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. And it's a beautiful thought, translated out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And Colossians continues to write, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins, to be pardoned from paying for your sins. Imagine the beautiful feeling that a sinner feels as they're there burdened with the weight of sin and the guilt of sin and, and the absolute shame of sin and the embarrassment of sin. And for the first time in their sinful condition, clutched by the power of the enemy, they come to understand one truth. Jesus died for me. And God takes that person out of that land that they live in, that land of clutches, that land of slavery to sin. And he plucks them out of that land. That's what we're learning about in Colossians chapter one. And he translates them out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And once perhaps as a filthy, uh, let's use this, I speak very respectfully, as a, as a peasant sinner, right? He's sitting there and he's filled in his sin. God takes him, he cleanses his sin, and he sits him at the king's table. Saved. That's the word Dave spoke about today. Saved. On your way to heaven. Saved from ever paying for your sins. Saved from over the power of your sins. Saved from ever entering hell beneath. Saved a new life in Christ. The word of God comes alive and transforms your life. And here we see these words, the way to pardon. There are two magicians. And just because I'm on, this is live, I'm not going to mention names. But there are two magicians out west. Very popular. They're all over the television. And there was an individual, a young man, who was preaching the gospel and really stuttering with it and just seeking to preach Christ. Paul says we preach Christ and Christ crucified. And this man was preaching and one of these individuals went up to him and he said, you really believe your message. He's a devout atheist if there ever is such a thing. He chooses to believe there's no God. But God reveals himself anyway. <laughs> That's a whole other subject. And the man says, yes, I have faith in the word of God that Christ Jesus died for sinners. He said this, if I believe that message, 
I would drop everything that I own. I'd crawl on my hands and knees. I'd crawl through glass to see another soul saved if I believe that message. Imagine that. An atheist saying those words. God's saying you can be pardoned. It's so different than any message you've ever heard. Not guilty no more in our sins. Not condemned anymore in our sins. But we're free. And that's through the person of Christ. So Jesus says, I am the way to pardon. I am, number two, the way to peace. Look at John chapter 14 and verse 27. He says this, peace I leave with you. You can tell it. And we, if we were to be transparent tonight and just allow some vulnerability, just pull the walls of pride around our heart, just rip them right off. And you're to go through this neighborhood and ask people, regardless of how rich they are, how poor they are, how affluent, affluent they are, how not they are. And you were to say, do you have absolute peace? Meaning, now you wake up, there's nothing that creates unpeace or a peaceless day. You'd be shocked, I guarantee it. In my particular neighborhood where we live, I, you'd be shocked. I would say 99.9% of people say, I have no peace. The world today has no peace. And God says we have no peace with him because we are separate from him. And we need to be reconciled to him. And we need to be brought together to him. And I love the words of scripture where we read these words. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus bridges the gap. And he did that at the place called Calvary. And John chapter 14 and verse 27 is saying these words. Peace I leave with you. He says, my peace. And not Dave's peace. And not Harrison's peace. It wouldn't last very long. Not my peace. Not the peace of your church. That wouldn't last very long either because there's a day that all these buildings and everything we hold and trust is all going to burn and float away. But Jesus says the peace that will never leave. Jesus says this, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. The way to peace. At Pacific Garden Mission, there was a man recently, just a couple weeks ago, you know, it's interesting. You wonder, uh, is God saving? The other day, I sent a, a brother a text down there, and I said, how many people profess to trust Christ just today? It was 5.30, and there were 13 people. One day, God's saving all over the world. Whether you see it or whether you don't. Uh, whether you understand it or whether you don't. Uh, whether you take knowledge of it and actually admit that he's saving or doesn't. It doesn't matter. God is saving sinners. He came not into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. That's what I love. He came to seek and to save them that are lost. And this man, Patrick Hoban, at 55 years old, divorced for 20 years. Think of, when I tell you this story, think of uh, him having no peace at all. Divorced for 20 years. He becomes a drunkard. He wakes up in an abandoned house, and what he wakes up to is a rat just a few feet from him eating the rest of his pizza. How would you feel? He had everything. He had the career. He had the fun German cars. He had all the toys. And him and his wife separated just due to particular sins in their marriage. And they separated and he fell into a rut and he turned to drink. He turned to the devil's poison. And he began to drink that drink and he became an alcoholic. He couldn't stop drinking. It's the difference. It became a problem. It became a, a taskmaster over his life. And he couldn't even drown his own sorrows with the devils. And here he is, he has no peace. And he realizes one thing as he, he went, he said, listen, this life, he said these words, I've had enough of this life. I wonder if you've had enough of your sin. You say, I'm done with my sin. I'm done with feeling the burden of my sin. I walk through places and I feel the, the ever-weighing burden of my sin. It seems like that I can't get any higher standing up. I keep falling forward in my sin because it's so heavy. No peace with God. And this man says, no peace. He goes to Pacific Garden Mission. He hears these words, John 14 and verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart 
be troubled, neither be afraid. And he went back in John chapter 14. He started searching scripture and he saw a man, Thomas, that perhaps that didn't have peace in his own life, convicted of his own sin near the person of Christ. And Thomas asked the question, how do we know the way? And this young man here, Patrick, young at 55, he came to understand the way. He came to understand the truth and he came to understand the life, which was Christ. And it's the only way he's going to get to the father, only way he's going to get to heaven. The world today, I will tell you, is searching to fill a void. What time are we at? The world is searching to fill voids. They're trying everything. Careers, money, marriages, relationships, travel. And they're all trying to fill this, this lack of peace, this lack of hope, this lack of everything. And Jesus says, listen, God's promise that you come to my son, you will know peace because Jesus gives peace. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. Philippians 4 and verse 7 says this, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through, again, Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the way to pardon. He's the way to peace. He's the way to purity. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I have a relative who told me one time, he said, Matt, if I could just go back in his early 20s, he said, if I could just go back and be pure of my sin. He had so much regret and so much hanging over him. And everywhere he walked, people would say, you know whose son that is? That's that man's son. And that man passed away. And his son had this guilt. He said, if I could just be pure of my sins. And one time a church group came into, and he got convicted in his sins. His sin found him out, see. He was behind bars. And there was a church group that came in, and they started singing these words of how great thou art. And when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And he's saying these words, then sings my soul, my savior, God to thee, how great thou art. And he understood for the very first time, the way to pardon, the way to peace, the way to purity, that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all, all our sin. You could know that tonight. That's the truth of the word of God. Not something I said or Dave said, but right from this book. And you come to trust in the person of Christ. Not only is the way to peace, not only is the way to purity, not only is the way to pardon, he's also the way to power. Does sin, and I speak to especially the older ones tonight, does sin have an iron grip on your life? Now you can search your own heart. I, I can't see past the clothes and, and the good looks and the smiles and everything. I can't, but God sees. And he sees the grip. And he sees those iron doors that have shut because of sin. And he sees the claws that men try to get out of their sin. And here Jesus is saying, I have overcome the power of sin. Jesus overcame the power of sin on a cross. He defeated the enemy. And we read here in Philippians chapter 4 as a believer is uh, perhaps looking at life and wondering how they're going to overcome the power of sin after they've come to trust Christ. Listen to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. For I can do everything, everything through Christ who gives me strength. Everything through Christ who gives me strength. Imagine having that power on your side as you walk your Christian life and the waves of the, the world and the waves and the chaos and the, and the turmoil of the world start to pound upon your person and you can do everything all because of Christ. Listen to how the Holy Spirit empowers a person after they come to trust Christ. Acts chapter one and verse eight, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses for me, telling me, uh, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the world and in Wyckoff. And God wants to use you. If you're a younger believer here tonight, God would love to use your life. If you're an unbeliever here tonight, God would love to use your life. He'd save your life. He'd transform your life. He'd wash your sins as far as the east is from the west. Never to look at your sin again. God looks down upon a sinner that has come to trust Christ and he sees the blood of Christ. It covers him 
forever paying for our sins. Let me end with this. What do we have for time? We'll end with this. What's the worst that, verse that we read? I was going to close with a story. We'll do it Monday. Jesus said, as Thomas asked him how to get to heaven, Jesus said, Thomas said, what must I do to go to heaven? How do we know the way? How for sure can we know the way? And Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, no man comes to heaven, but through me. You can know you're going to heaven tonight through the person of Christ. Let's pray.